If you are in the 81% of aspiring authors out there, stop aspiring and start writing with Readsy. Readsy allows indie authors to find and work with the best publishing professionals, from developmental editors to book cover designers to publicists. Just sign up for an author profile, browse the extensive marketplace of professionals, find the best fit for your project, and set a collaboration in motion. And with built-in contracts, protection, and mediation from Readsy, finding qualified freelancers, editors, designers, and marketers as a self-published author just got a lot easier. Go to readsy.com today to sign up and set your first collaboration in motion. That's R-E-E-D-S-Y dot com. Oh no, that's a great term. That was it was laziness. I still don't really understand how I do it. To be told exactly what to write, I kind of gave up. That sort of story is inspirational to a lot of wannabe writers out there who feel they have a book in them but are living a totally different life at the moment. It spoke to me to be away from a cookie cutter sort of, that's a terrible word. I started working on writing as escapist. Taking a book the whole nine yards, from an idea in your head to words on a page, from a scribble on a napkin to a listing on Amazon, that's easier said than done. But it's also easier than you'd think. I'm your host, Casimir M. Stone, and this is Readsy's Best Seller, the podcast demystifying the process of self-publishing a book for aspiring novelists everywhere, one episode at a time. This is Season 3, Chapter 2, The Least Syllable of Thy Edition. Picture this. You're walking down the street, minding your own, when all of a sudden a guy in pumpkin pants jumps out from behind the corner and calls you a knave a rascal, an eater of broken meats, a base, proud, shallow, beggarly, three-suited, hundred-pound, filthy, worsted-stocking knave, a lily-livered, action-taking knave, a whoreson, glass-gazing, super-serviceable, finical rogue, one-trunk-inheriting slave, one that wouldst be a bawd in way of good service and art nothing but the composition of a knave, beggar, coward, pander, and the son and heir of a mongrel bitch, one whom I will beat into clamorous whining if thou denies the least syllable of thy addition. What do you do? Do you cry, laugh, strike back with a biting witticism of your own? It wouldn't be hard to come up with a better one than that that the character Oswald comes back with after suffering through the aforequoted insult from the Earl of Kent in Shakespeare's King Lear. He opts for simple outrage. Why, what a monstrous fellow art thou, thus to rail on one that is neither known of thee or knows thee. And yet, Shakespeare was not a monstrous fellow for using much of his storied career to rail on those he neither knew nor who knew of him, be it his characters, his literary enemies, or, very often, his audience. In fact, he was simply doing his due diligence as an author. Far be it from me to say why, but any cursory Google search for literary insults will confirm very quickly that coming up with piercing takedowns is a prerequisite for any renowned author. Whether you're J.D. Salinger, calmly noting that all morons hate it when you call them a moron, or Margaret Mitchell, harshly ending a conversation and book with a frank, my dear, I don't give a damn. Maybe it just comes down to the human need for connection. Whether you make your audience laugh or cry or rush for the nearest pad of paper to come up with insults of their own, you've got a reaction from them. And now, you're both closer for it. That's uh, actually, I think, like an underrated um, aspect of writing, right? Is just coming up with 
good insult. I know. But whatever the case, there is a fine line between an insult of literary value versus insulting someone's intelligence, sensibilities, or anything else that burns bridges instead of bridging the gap. Even when hurling insults their way, your goal as an author is to connect with an audience, be it your readers, friends, or the professionals you pay to give their own biting assessments of your writing. You get these comments that make you feel like sky high a million dollars, and then the next paragraph you get a comment that makes you want to just melt into the floor. Tara, once again, learned that the hard way. But we'll get there in a second. Remember, Tara, aka TM Holiday, was at this point well on her way to publishing her breakout YA novel, Hiding Halo. She had already mastered the art of writing like a teenager and creating a believable, if still a little fantastical world for them to escape into. If you don't remember, check out our previous episodes of this season. But writing for young adults is more complex than that, because you're not just writing for young adults. You're writing for plain old adults, too, and not just the ones that comprise over 50% of YA readers. You're also writing for parents, because even when kids are the ones reading your YA book, they're probably not the ones buying it. Um, there's definitely responsibility, and it gets, I get reminded of that responsibility um, when parents or adults talk to me. How do you even begin to approach this paradox? The young adults reading your book will be at the prime age to appreciate a good insult. Water down your language too much and you risk the gravest error of all. Treating kids like kids. But the adults reading your book will be the ones in charge of getting it into young readers' hands, or onto a dreaded ban list. So how do you strike the right balance of appealing to both? It's deceptively simple, actually. Before you publish, make sure it's picked up by a lot of different readers. You have to have obviously more than one source of feedback. In our previous seasons, we've pretty well covered the process of getting your self-published book in front of a professional editor. And make no mistake, like most first-time authors, Tara experienced plenty of pros and cons in that process too. My first book, I, my editor, she was great. I was happy with the final product, but I met her through an industry source. And so I didn't know her. We'd only communicated through email. So it was what it was. I did, she did point out that I misspelled the word duffel like 40 times. And then I was like, why on earth do I need to use the word duffel 40 times in a novel? But YA readers, and for that matter, most other communities of readers as well, are so diverse that sending your first draft to just one person for feedback probably won't do you much good. That is where beta readers come in. I remember I had a beta reader. She's wonderful. She's so great. She, um, I gave her the manuscript and I told her that I had a friend who wrote a book. <laughs> And if she could read it and give feedback, because she is a, she's just a big, like a fan of series and, and she's very blunt and very opinionated. And I gave her the manuscript. Just like software and video game developers put out nearly completed beta versions of their products to help work out any kinks before releasing the real deal, many writers send completed manuscripts out to select readers prior to publication in order to get third-party feedback from the average reader's point of view. 
Beta readers don't replace editors, but they are almost as necessary. When going through the gauntlet of developmental and line editing, reading your own words daily and proofing them with a fine-toothed comb, you start to miss some things that readers might pick up on the first go-around. I'm very weary of feedback from people who are so um, invested in my world that I've created. It feels like they're in it with me, and so it's kind of hard for us to see some things that other people, outsiders, wouldn't see. Of course, this is further complicated by the fact that beta readers very often aren't outsiders. After the many attempts it inevitably takes to turn a terrible first draft into a manuscript, you probably aren't going to be comfortable just handing it out to strangers on the street. Oftentimes, beta readers are friends and family, which naturally presents its own problems too. Actually, okay, I'm going to just hope and pray my sisters don't uh, listen to this podcast. Sure. But my sisters sometimes give the worst feedback ever because I will send them a manuscript and all I get back is like, yay, it was so great. Good job. Also, I hate this character's name. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, we're on book three, so I can't change his name. <laughs> and thanks for the worst feedback ever. Don't get me wrong, it can be scary putting your manuscript out there for anyone to read, especially when they're not family members who you know won't be too mean, or a professional you're paying to let you down easily. Remember the friend that Tara sent her manuscript to while pretending it was written by someone else? Well, eventually, she finished reading it. She didn't read it for a month. And I was getting really antsy, like every day. I was like, when am I going to hear from her? When am I going to hear from her? And so I sent her this text. that was like, hey, no pressure, but how are you doing on that book? And she's like, oh, I totally forgot about it. So then she called me two days later and she was like, Tara, this is awesome. And so she just kind of, you know, went into it and was like, who wrote this? I want to know who wrote this. And so I kind of ad I admitted it, that it was me. And she's like, oh my gosh, we got to tell everybody. I was like, no, 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 I don't want to tell anybody until I know that I'm actually going to go through with this. That was almost it for Tara's readership, her husband, her sisters, and her friend. But these days, she has a very different attitude when it comes to people critiquing her own words. Don't get too attached <laughs> because things are going to change and um, have that thick skin and know that they are professionals. And even though it's your baby and you can do it the way you want to do it, they know what they're talking about. And so when they say a character's boring, <laughs> that character's boring and you got to fix it. And when they say a plot line doesn't make sense, it may make sense to you, but it's not making sense to the reader, obviously. So you have to fix that. So why the change of heart? Turns out, Tara discovered something many authors eventually do. Limiting your beta feedback to friends and family is not the best idea. For more unbiased takes, many authors reach out to online writing communities, members of their mailing group, or connections they've made in the self-publishing world. With each book, I've tried to get um, feedback from somebody that I don't know. The trick is to find a diverse set of readers and make sure your book is connecting in different ways with all of them. Yes, even when you're insulting them. Yeah, I got lots of different kinds of feedback. Um, my my best friend, she gives me kind of psychological feedback. 
And she makes me question everything. And she's like, well, what if you just kill this person? But it was like, <laughs> like a, a main person that I needed through the whole story. And I was like, I can't, I can't do that. And she's like, but what would happen if you did? And then um, I had this other great reader um, and she was the one who I, I gave her the manuscript and told her it was somebody else because she's just like YA fandom reader. And so I knew that she would give me super blunt, honest feedback. And she still gives me that kind of feedback. You know, these are the things that are thrilling. These are the things that your reader's going to hate. Don't you dare do this or no, you have to kill somebody because she needs, you know, and then I have this uh, group of women who <laughs> we, I call it my huddle and uh, they give me Mostly when I need an insult, I consult them and they give me a long list of wonderful <laughs> insults to use. Tara had the right idea. To ensure a great beta reading experience, be sure to look for readers with a deep knowledge of your genre and subject, as well as people who don't already read books like yours. Then make sure to establish deadlines to you know, avoid month-long waits, and finally be open to feedback, yet decisive about which changes will benefit the story you want to tell. Beta readers' advice can be as diverse in quality as they should be in taste. Nevertheless, finding them is a crucial part of any writer's process. But every once in a while, beta readers will find you. For Tara, that meant scoring a new editor in an unexpected place. I got an email from somebody who gave me, it was two paragraphs of like super suspicious flattery. And I was like, what? And then she proceeded to list out 33 mistakes that were in my first book. And in my first editor's defense, it was all parts that I had added after it had been through an editor, which I learned my lesson on that one. But um, anyway, she was emailing me and asking if she could beta read and that she was an editor and it was kind of a crazy email I thought she's either crazy or she's really funny <laughs> and so she was local and I met her at a park and she turned out to be hilarious and wonderful and and so because I now had a personal relationship with her I decided to switch editors and it was it made it easier to get you know instant feedback from somebody who was really invested in the story as opposed to a kind of more formal business arrangement. What's more, she had finally found the perfect balance, a personal connection that won't pull punches. So yeah, we just talked about, I guess, the, the cons of getting feedback from people who you have a very personal relationship with, but ultimately you've fallen on the side of, I would rather have someone with a personal uh, investment in the book versus someone more professional. I think so. And I think part of that is because the the story threads and all of the plot lines are kind of so intertwined and complex that to have somebody who wasn't invested in it, I feel like they would miss things that I need them to see. You know what I'm saying? Like my my brain is so muddled with all of this sometimes that it's hard for me to see inconsistencies. And so somebody who is just as invested but hasn't written it 
can see what's missing. However, there was one other beta reader who found Tara just when she needed her the most. And she turned out to be the most important reader of all. Book two happened a lot faster because I got an email and it was a woman who her granddaughter had read my first book and her name was Ellie and Ellie was in the hospital with a pretty scary, aggressive bone cancer. Um, I wanted to know that she would be okay. And I didn't know that she would be okay. And, um, her grandmother had told me that she had read the book and she was in the hospital. And when her parents had asked her if they could get her something, I think they were referring to, you know, can I get you a blanket or ice chips or, you know, something, can I get you something? And this amazing 12 year old girl said that she wanted to read book two of the next book of hiding halo. And so her grandma emailed me asking when book two was going to come out. And at the time, I was only probably two-thirds of the way through writing it. And I knew that um, there was a chance that if I didn't write this fast enough that she wouldn't be able to read it. And so I started writing until four in the morning. And I was trying to crank it out as fast as I could. And I got that last third written in two weeks. And I mailed it to her with a bunch of other stuff and um, sent it off to her and told her that she was the first reader and she emailed me back and it, and we started kind of a amazing sort of friendship. So book two is dedicated to her and my husband because they were the two that motivated me to write it. And I remember it was like three in the morning, four in the morning one time and my eyes were red and my brain hurt. And I was writing in bed and my husband woke up and he turned and he looked at me and he kind of grunted and then went back to bed. And I said something like, is this worth it? You know, it's four in the morning. I have three kids. They're going to need me tomorrow. And life is just hard. Is it worth it? And he asked me, well, would it be worth it if you and Ellie were the only ones who ever read it? And I knew the answer. And so I kept writing. Sounds pretty wholesome, right? Well, not exactly, because it was just then, in this crucial moment of finding a real connection with a reader, that Tara discovered the importance of getting feedback from more than one source. Actually, oh my goodness, in that, in my second book, in the draft that I sent to Ellie, you know, I hadn't sent it to my editor yet, and I sent it to Ellie and she read it, and then at the same time I sent it to my editor. and. My editor gets back to me and she goes, um, you can't use this word at all in your book. And I was like, what? So (laughs) when I was looking for insults, I found this word that was so funny. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Oh, anyway. So I sent a book to a 12 year old with the word twat waffle in it. Oh my God. I know. I had no idea what it meant. I mean, I looked it up on Urban Dictionary or something, and the very first description I read was something like a person who's a total jerk and a tool. And I was like, okay, there we go. And so I got to tell you, at least half of my emails from readers are from girls between the ages of 11 and 14. And so 
I sent to a 12 year old this book with twat waffle and I had no idea what it was. And so now my huddle says it all the time and they make fun of me and they, you know, when I need an insult, they're like, well, you could always go back to your, your go-to. Anyway, it was an incident. I had to apologize to her mother. Anyway, it was a whole thing. Yes, your responsibility doesn't end with toning down insults for younger ears. As a YA author, you are making a direct impression on a very impressionable demographic. And no matter how many beta readers and editors you have, only you are responsible for making sure it's a good one. Again, I wrote it for me, right? And Mm -hmm. so as an adult, I can look at the violence or um, some of the other things and see it for what it is but you you know you kind of don't think well how would a 12 year old see this which is a little different and so there is a scene in the first book where my main character gets i've had people tell me you know that scene where she was like molested she was kissed aggressively from somebody who she'd been kissing all day long Mm -hmm. and then suddenly didn't want it anymore and tried to push him away and he didn't listen when I realized, okay, there's young girls reading this. I want to show the feelings and I want to show the cause and effect. And um, I want readers to know what happened, but I don't necessarily want to leave them with some, you know, super visual scarring sort of. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. And so I finally got to the point and asked Tara, yeah, how do you how do you toe that line between writing like girls between the age of 11 and 14? They don't want to be treated like kids anymore, but you also can't treat them like adults. So how do you, you know, strike the right balance? If I can get away without swearing, I I do. My main character has a brother. He gets really really mad one time and I could not think of a word that didn't sound stupid without swearing or something kind of you know, borderline. And so her brother calls somebody a douche canoe. <laughs> and I can't find myself to take it out because what else are you going to call? I mean, it's kind of this big deal when he gets really mad. And so that was kind of my first time of like, okay, douche canoe. It's not swearing. It's not, but mm, I still have to appeal to adults, you know, and it has to be genuine and realistic. And um, there's a lot of situations in there where there is violence or there is gonna there is going to be swearing or it just you know it just wouldn't ring true unless that stuff was in there and so it's it's very selective word choice to make it um realistic but not overt or gratuitous Whether you're hurling awesome insults at your readers or hoping and praying your readers don't start hurling their own at you, the goal of writing is connection. Tara, at first, wanted to keep her world to herself, a safe place for her to escape from everything and everyone else. But eventually, she came around. It's only worth escaping if you can take someone else with you. Book one was just for me. And then when my kids saw what I had done... And I could see them proud of me and then readers contacting me and people telling me these stories about um, reading it and being inspired or reading it and um, wanting to know more. All of a sudden, because now I was sharing this space with other people, you know, I was sharing this world. um, I had 
I had to write for them too. And so it makes a huge difference. It, you know, I kind of started to frame my characters in a sense of, I have young girls looking up to these characters and it changes the way that I wrote, but I think it was for the better. Brought to you by Readsy, this is Best Seller. Over the course of this season, we'll follow an indie author's journey from start to finish in five chapters, exploring each step it takes to turn the escapist world of your dreams into a bona fide young adult series. This episode was written, hosted, and produced by me, Casimir M. Stone. If you liked it, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Our guest this season is Tara Holiday, aka TM Holiday, author of the Candian Airs series. You can purchase her books on Amazon or on her website at tmholiday.com. That's T M H O L L A D A Y.com. And you can follow her on Instagram or Twitter at TM Holiday. This podcast, like so many self-published books out there, is made possible by Readsy, a marketplace that connects indie authors with the tools that traditional publishing houses would usually provide, such as editors, book cover designers, and publicists. You can learn more about Readsy on Instagram at Readsy underscore HQ, on Twitter at Readsy HQ, or online at R-E-E-D-S-Y dot com.